Guys, thank you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. How many, anybody, I hate to admit this, anybody remember the movie from 1999, A Blast from the Past? Yeah, I wouldn't admit it either, but I want to talk about it. So, um, but anyway, yeah, uh, I, I told my daughter, I asked my wife, I said, there was a movie about 10 years ago, and Betty goes, I don't remember that. And so it turns out it was 17 years ago. But anyway, uh, this is a, kind of an odd movie, but let me just set the tone. The guy, uh, there was a husband and wife, 1950s. They thought, hey, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. So they went into a, uh, they went into a, they built a bomb shelter kind of underneath L.A., and they spent 30 years there. And so that's all they did for 30 years was run around in this bomb shelter. And then one day, the movie kind of starts with this guy. He's 30 years old. His name's Adam in the movie, and I'm going to hang on to that. But, but so he looks at his mom and dad and says, I want to meet a girl. And so that's kind of how this thing started. So just imagine with me. So he comes up and he goes, all oh, this thing. But imagine with me. Just think about it. What if you met somebody? They were 30-something years old. They'd never seen the sky. They'd never seen a girl other than their mom. And that, you know, we don't want to even go there. So, so they'd, they'd never seen a girl. They'd never seen the sky. They'd never been on a date. They had never driven a car. And so, you, I mean, it would, it would be odd. I, I, I'm, I'm with you. It, it would be weird. But imagine you meet that person, and you're coming out of church, and they see this church, and they see this cross, or, you know, outside, and they see this group of people, and they look you in the eye, and they go, okay, what is a church? Who are you guys? What would you say? If, if you had to take who we are and what we are and what we do, if you had to take that and... and Distill it down to a conversation with somebody that had never heard the gospel, didn't know about church, what would you say? Now, as far-fetched as that may seem, uh, I, I think I shared with this last week or the week before, I sat on a plane with a guy. Didn't know the gospel. Dad was an atheist. Militant, I think. They're out there. So what would we say? So what, what is the gospel? Well, this morning, that's what we want to talk about. We're bringing, beginning a brand new series. The title of the series is We Are. And over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what we value, what we hold dear as the people of God. And, and uh, some of the things are, uh, I told the prayer group this morning, some of it's going to be, uh, these are core values. It's really what we believe in who we are. Some of them are aspirational values. In other words, this is, this is what we're called to be. We're not there yet. That's where we're going. So we're going to be talking about that over the, the next few weeks. But today we're going to start with we are gospel-centered because it all begins and it all ends and everything in between is the gospel. But back to our character named Adam, Adam Weber, you know, the bomb shelter guy. He wants to know the gospel. And he says, what is the gospel? What would we say? Well, we might begin like this. Well, once upon a time in a land far away, or there was no land. There was no far away. There wasn't even a time. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this God, this uncreated being is immaterial. He's uncreated. He's without time. He's without space. He's without limitation. He existed eternally. This God spoke. And time came into being. And space came into being. And matter came into being. And that matter was the universe. Well, a little part of that universe was the earth. And God spoke that earth into existence. He divided the, the water. You know, he took all this stuff and he just fashioned this earth 
interestingly enough, uniquely, perfectly designed for humanity to exist. I mean, just perfectly, perfectly. The only planet in the known universe perfectly designed to sustain life. God made that. And then he created the the water and the trees and the plants. Adam, he created all these animals. And then he kind of looked around and there was really nobody for him to have fellowship with. And so he created Adam in his own image. And he thought, that's pretty cool. And then he thought, but he needs a partner. And so he put him to sleep. He took out one of his ribs and he fashioned this woman. And he gave her to the man. And the man said, wow. And it was awesome. And God looked at his creation and it was good. In fact, the scripture says he looked particularly at Adam and Eve. And he said, man, this is very good. I mean, the garden was perfect. Everything was perfect. Man and woman together. And, and, and the thing of it is, the, the amazing thing about it is God's put him in this garden. He said, look at, he says, look at all of this stuff. Look at all of it. You can have all of this stuff. But there's a tree right here. Adam, this tree, this is the tree of good and evil. You can have all of that. Any of that you want. Anytime you want, as much as you want. But not this. And we know the story. Adam don't know the story, but you know, Adam, kind of like a little kid, you can tell him you can have everything else, but you can't have this. Where does the four-year-old go? He goes to this, right? Any of you, y'all been there? Yeah, we were, I remember that. Remember? Well, anyway. Um, so, so they went there. Now, they could have had perfection. They could have loved God perfectly. They could have enjoyed God perfectly. They could have enjoyed creation perfectly. But there was one commandment, and they broke it. And, and, and with breaking that commandment, man, it just literally, it messed everything up. God created a perfect world. But sin came into the world. And when they chose to ignore his one and only command, sin entered the world. The problem with sin is sin brings in selfishness. And selfishness brings in ugliness. And ugliness brings in brokenness. And so now we live in the world and you look around and it is broken and it is ugly. And people are killing people and people are in bondage. That's what sin does. It brings bondage. People are in bondage to to habits, they're in bondage to substances, they're in bondage to behaviors, and we look around our world and it's just all broken up. And the problem is not just that sin enslaves people, but sin brings condemnation, it brings death. Physical death, yes, but even more so, sin brings spiritual death. For all of sin that comes short of the glory of God, yes, and the wages of sin The payment for that sin, the scripture says, is death. And so we had perfection, but sin came in and messed everything up. And then I would look at Adam and say, what the world needed was a rescuer. The world needed a savior. The the world needed somebody to come to redeem them from the old life. Someone who could take brokenness and fix it. Someone who could take guilt and forgive it. Someone who could take shame and wipe it away. Someone who could take selfishness and do it. Someone who could take death and turn it into life. Now, every story, every good story, every good movie has a hero. And the gospel has a hero. 
And his name is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. And when the church opened on day one, on day one, first church, first day, first sermon, Peter stood up and he told him about Jesus. And we're going to pick up that story right here in Acts chapter 2. He looks at the crowd and he finishes the gospel. Here's what he says, Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Would you pray with me? Father, as we unpack the heart of the gospel this morning, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, and God raised him from the dead. This event is life-changing. It's world-changing. And God, I pray that as we unpack the gospel, that every one of us here would embrace our own journey of faith that every one of us here would examine where we are in the faith. And God, for those that do not yet know Christ, my hope is that today they would come to know him. For those of us that follow you, Jesus, may the gospel bear fruit in our heart and life like never before. God, would you have your way in every life, and we'll be careful to give you the honor and the glory for it all. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so what I would say to Adam is, Adam, Jesus Christ came. He was revealed to all men. In fact, the scripture says here that, that Peter explained the gospel. That's kind of the first thought I want to wrap our minds around. He explained the gospel. Well, how did he explain the gospel? He said, well, Jesus was revealed to all men. Jesus, a man attested to you by miracles. And think about this. Peter's preaching to the people six weeks earlier. Most of them had seen Jesus hanging on the cross. Six weeks earlier, they, had, you know, they, they closed out the life of Jesus. They knew who he was. They had seen him walk their streets. Many of them had seen his miracles. I mean, they knew. And Peter says, hey, Jesus, God attested him to you by miracles and such. So first of all, Jesus was revealed. The, the second aspect that I think we often overlook is that Jesus, Jesus was delivered up to men by the plan and foreknowledge of God. You know, we sometimes we stuff takes us by surprise, right? I mean, it just stuff happens. We say, right, "Where'd that come from?" Never happens to God, ever. The reason Jesus went to a cross. I mean, we think, "Well, the soldiers killed him. Well, Judas betrayed him. Well, the, the, the Roman. Well, the Jew." You know, and we got this long list. And yes, they did all that. But God was right in the middle of it. He was delivered up by the plan and foreknowledge of God. So, so Jesus was revealed. Jesus was delivered. Jesus was, was crucified. 
by lawless men, sinful men. So Jesus, he was attested, revealed to all men. He was delivered by God. He was crucified by sinful men. And then he was buried by godly men. We don't see that in our text, but if you go to uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 43, we'll, we read about Joseph of Arimathea. He was, a, he was a religious guy. He was a rich guy. He was a godly guy. And he was a bold guy because... Because at the end, I mean, Jesus had just been killed by the enemy. And so he has the guts to go to Pilate and say, hey, can I, can I take Jesus? And he took him down from the cross, prepared his body, and he took him, and he buried him. And so Christ was buried. And then the, the last aspect, the most important aspect of the gospel. See, up to now, Jesus was a great guy. Jesus did some great things. God let Jesus die. Some ungodly guys killed him. Nice guy came and buried him. Okay. But the deal breaker is that he couldn't stay dead. God loosed the pangs of death. He was resurrected. And that event, that, that's what makes Christianity different. See, the thing about it, every religion, every religion says, every religion says, hey, if you, if you will be good, if you'll do right, and if you'll do your best, you'll be accepted. It's what you, you just you mark them down. It's what they all teach. But the gospel says, you have been accepted because Jesus Christ died in your place. And because you've been accepted, you need to live a different life. That's the gospel. And that's what we see. It's what happened. They, and so, so Peter explained the gospel. Well, let's, well, let's look down here in uh, the second point that I want to get to, and that is uh, Peter explained the gospel. The sinners embraced the gospel. Look down in verse 37. It says, now, when they heard this, now who's they? Who heard this? Well, the, the people, the, uh, Peter had already said, listen, you're the ones that crucified I mean, Peter's looking out here, and I don't know. He might have recognized some of them, but he looks at them and he says, hey, you guys, you're the ones who killed him. You're the ones that put him on the cross. That's who he was talking to. He was talking to. Now, you might say, well, did they all crucify him? Well, no. But yeah, well, only a handful of them nailed him to the cross. Only, only a few of them were there when they put the crown of thorns on him. Only a handful were there when they scourged him. But, but everybody in the crowd, with very few exceptions, six weeks earlier, were standing in the crowd with Pilate, and they were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so Peter looks at him and says, you're the one. You killed him. You killed him. And I suspect he probably knew a few guys. He probably recognized a few guys. He said, you're the one that killed him. Now, lest we, and we think, well, that was harsh. But you know what? When you and I sin, you know what we're, you know what we're saying when we sin? Crucify him. Our life, our sin, our disobedience cries out, screams out, crucify, crucify, crucify. When they heard this, notice what it says in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. We, we use the term conviction. They were convicted. They experienced remorse. 
maybe regret, but probably more than remorse and regret because because oftentimes remorse is just, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that or, or I wish I didn't feel like that because I've done that or, or I wish I wouldn't have got caught. That's kind of what remorse is. But conviction, they were cutting their heart. They were convicted. But it didn't stop there. See, when you embrace, and that's the thing, they embrace the gospel. When you embrace the gospel, obviously God's spirit cuts your heart and you feel the guilt in, the, in, in, in the, the sin in your life pressing down on you, and you go, no, hey, yeah, I, I, I'm guilty. And that's what we call conviction. When that weight presses on you, and, and you, you're experiencing guilt and shame, and, and, but it can't stop there. It didn't stop there, because the Scripture says, they said, what do we do? And Peter says, repent. You've got to repent. You see, when, when the weight of the gospel presses on us and we realize that I have indeed sinned and come short of the glory of God, and because of my sin, I, I was a part of the crucifying of Jesus, when, when we feel the weight of that, we can't just say, oh, man, I'm glad, God, I'm, I'm glad for Jesus. See, when we feel that weight, there, something's got to happen. Uh, the Scripture says they were going their own way and they repented. To repent means that you turn and you go the other direction. We talked about this some months ago. First uh, Thessalonians uh, 1.9, I think it is, that, that says they, they, it says that they turned from idols to serve the living God. And so this remorse conviction has to bring repentance. Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of sins. And, did it, and, he, and he exhorted them with many. In fact, let's look at verse uh, 38 and 39. This is, this is rich. 39, for the promise. Well, let, 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, for the promise is for you. So Peter looks out and says, hey, the promise is for you. He's looking at these. They're the one. Remember, they killed Jesus. Most of them were there. Egging it on, going, yeah, yeah, hey, my team won. Jesus is going to die. I mean, they were there. And he says, this promise is for you. And he says, it's for your children. And then he says, it's for all who are far off. You know who that is? I'm far off. That was, this happened long ago and far away. But it applies to me. The promise that Peter gave to them. Hey, you repent and you believe and you'll receive life and forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. You got you to gotta have this, this conviction, this regret, this remorse. You got to have repentance and you got to receive the gospel. That's why John said in 1.12, but as many as received him to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. But here's what's interesting is, and this concerns me, is, is, is simply this. Faith without repentance, feeling convicted by your sin, believing Jesus died for your sin, but not repenting of your sin means Nothing. Let me say that again. Believing Jesus died for our sins, feeling guilty and convicted about our sin means nothing 
unless we repent of our sins. Acts 3.19, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins might be blotted out. See, it's when we turn from sin to God that the transaction is finalized. You know when you buy something online, you, you, know, you put in your credit card, you do all these things, but eventually you got to get to that point where it says finalized set, uh, transaction or, or submit final transaction, whatever. There's a, repentance is that final thing. You got to believe, you got to be convicted, but you got to repent. See, here's the thing. James 2.19 says, you believe in one God? You believe there's one God? He, he says, you do well. The demons believe that, and they tremble. And, and so, to embrace the gospel, you got to be convicted. you got to repent. you got to receive the gospel. Now, let's look at verse 41 real quick before we move on. Look, look what he says. He says, so those who received his word, in other words, those, those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Uh, when you embrace the gospel, just think about this. There's, a, my, there's 174 people here. That's my guess, okay? So give or take 20, okay? On that day, 3,000 people. So pack this room out. Six times that many people embraced the gospel. They were convicted of their sin. They repented of their sin, and they put their faith in Christ. They received the gospel of Jesus, and it changed their life. And and notice what it says. This is so significant in verse 41 because he says, those that received his word were baptized and were added that day to the church about 3,000 souls. Let me give you three thoughts. Thought number one there, you need to be saved. Listen, you need to be saved before you're baptized. Don't, I, I don't mean to be critical, but some of you were baptized, maybe as an infant, maybe as a that confirmation, Maybe mom and dad said when you were eight, nine, or ten years old, Johnny, run on down and join the church. It's time for you to join the church. And you went down and you talked to the preacher and he asked if you love Jesus. You said, I love Jesus and I believe he died. And, 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 and you got baptized. But you never were born again. And what this text says is, is you got to be saved first. And then you need to be baptized. Some of you have been baptized, but you've never been born again. Secondly, he says, when you're saved, when they got saved, they immediately got baptized. Some of you, you are saved. You've given your life to Jesus, but you've never gotten baptized. You've never decided, hey, I'm going to get baptized because I want the world to know that my heart belongs to Jesus. And you just go, well, you know, I'm, I don't know if I could get up in front of all them people, and, you know, I'm afraid of water, and you've got all these reasons why. But what the text says is you need to be saved, and then you need to get baptized. And then there's a third group that he talks, that is really that's important here, is that, is that you need to be added to the assembly of believers. You, you need to be saved so you can go to heaven. You need to be baptized so you can identify with Jesus. But you need to be added to the body of Christ. 
And then some say, yeah, but I come and I serve and I do all these things. But they didn't come and serve and do all these things. They were added to the body. They identified with the people of God. They signed their name. They wrote it down. They said, we are in. Now, so you need to ask yourself, am I, 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 I come up with this term. It's not theological, so Ian and Wyatt, y'all can help me on this. But I, I, the, they were gospel saved. They were born again. They were baptized. And they were added to the church. That, my term for that, again, I've, I've never read it anywhere, but they were gospel saved. But that's not enough. Because many of us are gospel saved. But there was something else about them and so they embraced the gospel and they were a gospel saved. But I want us to look at what I'll call thirdly, they exemplified, believers exemplify the gospel. Now, what do I mean by that? Look down at verse 42. It says, and, and they. Now, the they here is the 3,000 that believe. Now, again, 3,000 got saved. They? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of, of bread. And so... So 3,000 were gospel saved that day, but they didn't stop there. They, they didn't stop with just being saved. See, that's what we see here in the Scriptures. See, for many of us, for many people, particularly in American culture, we see the gospel as, okay, I need, to be, I need to be saved. I need to be born again. I need to be baptized. I need to be part of the church because I need to go to heaven one day. We think of it, I think it was J.D. Greer at the Summit Church said, we tend to think of the gospel being the diving board, and, and, and we use the gospel to jump into the Christian life. And so you go, you get saved, you get baptized, you get, and so that's the diving board, and so that's the gospel, and then you go live your whole life. You go live the Christian life. But what J.D. Greer says effectively, he says it this way, he says, the gospel, however, is not just the diving board off which we jump into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is the pool itself. See, when you give your life to Christ, we don't ever need anything more than the gospel. All we need is to go deeper into the gospel. Tim Keller said it this way. Pastor of, author, pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. says, the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A to Z. Of Christianity, all of life should flow from the gospel, and that's what happened in the early church, and that's where we get this term called gospel-centered. The gospel, salvation, and baptism in church—it wasn't something they just did. It was somebody they became. And it had this great effect on their life. Uh, let me give you four areas. First of all, to be gospel-centered changes the purpose of your life. Look at verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, uh, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Th their purpose for life changed. Now, the word devoted, I think it was David Jeremiah that said this. Uh, the, the, in fact, let me give you exactly his definition. He said that, that term, devotion, means earnest affection for a person or a cause. So the idea of earnest affection, it's more than just commitment because you can be committed to something and you can be faithful to something and not have any affection for it. 
don't raise your hands, but how many of you go to a job that you don't especially like, but you go because it's your duty. You go because you've got to make a living. You go because you need a paycheck. Now, again, don't raise your hands because your boss might be here, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, staff, please, don't, don't raise your hand, okay? <laughs> Oops. Uh, but, but think about it. I mean, there's a lot of things we, we do because we're supposed to. But what, what Peter said is when, when they got the gospel, they began to do something out of devotion. Here's a term I like, affectionate commitment. When they, got to, when they got Jesus, they got affectionate commitment. Let me give you three areas that they, of, of purpose. First of all, they, they were affectionately committed to the, to the apostles' doctrine. In other words, they were affectionately committed to the word and the gospel of God. Can I just ask you a very personal question this morning? Are you affectionately committed, affectionately committed to the word of God? Do, do you love the word? Do, do we love it enough to read it every day? Well, you know, I, mean, I try, but I don't, you know, I don't really have time. How often do we check email? How often do we get on social media? How often do we watch the golf tournament or the football game or the whatever? See, are, are we affectionately committed? To the word of the gospel. Because see, see, when I look in the text, when I see what happened, when they became gospel-centered, their purpose in life got, just took on new meaning. They were committed to the word. They, but not only that, they were affectionately committed to the fellowship. And then there's that term, to the breaking of bread. Here, uh, it's not necessarily talking about eating dinner as much as it is. It's talking about uh, celebrating communion. Celebrating the Lord's body that was broken for them, the breaking, if you will, of bread. I mean, think about this idea of fellowship. When you have fellowship, it means you have something in common with someone else. And that's the idea here. When, when, when Christ came into their life, they, they began to have fellowship with other believers. and They, they began to have something in common, and it, it changed them. I mean, uh, one of the... Uh, Awesome things about, about going to Texas A&M. One of the things about being an Aggie is if, if you ever meet another Aggie, you meet a friend. And you'll, you'll meet somebody. You go, oh, you went to Texas A&M. And you know what the next question is? What class are you? Oh, I'm 85. Oh, I'm 2001. You know? I mean, the re- I, I think the reason I'm pastor here is because the chairman of the search committee was an Aggie. I just say, and I, I, I've waited six years to say that, you know. But I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, so, we have something in common. Uh, in the early service, Sandy Carr, I met her dad. He was class of 1938. The only man I ever met that, that saw A&M's national championship game in 1939. So it tells you how long ago it was. <laughs> right? One day we're going to have another one, but won't be, it'll be a while. Um, but, but, but here's what I want you to understand. See, as an ag, when an Aggie meets another Aggie, we have something common, so we share, here's when I was there. Now, for this church, for these new believers, they had something, in, they had a common union. I've, in, I've been introduced to Jesus Christ, and he's changed my life. And so they, they, they had this. 
I mean, think about it. Imagine if as followers of Christ, when, when I met you or you met me, I said, hey, my name's Micah, and I follow Jesus. Man, I'm class of 1972. That's when I sealed the deal. See, Aggies give the year they graduate because it, it seals the deal. As a believer, we ought to give the year we come to Christ. So, see, see what happens is when... When we've got something in common, we love to be together. And that was true of this church. See, it changed. I mean, it just, it, it just changed their life. So, so they, it, they had this love for the Word. They were effectually committed to the Word. They were effectually committed to the fellowship. That's why you need to be a part of the church. You say, well, I'm not sure about the church. Well, go find you one you can be effectually committed to. But you need to be part of the body. Because when they, listen, when the, go, the gospel, man, it... It shaped them. It changed them. And then it says they were committed to the prayers. We don't even have time to go into that. We, hey, when you get your homework assignment, you'll see what that means. But So the gospel shaped their person. When you become gospel-centered, not only that, the gospel changed their priorities. Let me ask you this question. What, what one or two things that you just, you're always trying to get more of? What, 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 there's one or two things that we always want more of. What's the first one? Money, right? How many of you would like to have a little more money? Y'all are a little more honest in the first service. First service, about four hands went up. I thought, really? I mean, I like, hey, I like money. I like to buy stuff. I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to love it like, you know, I don't, because loving it's the root of all evil. But yeah, so we try to get more money, right? What's the other thing that we're always trying to get more of? Time. How many of you would like to have more time? Discretionary time. Yeah, we all want more time and money, right? So, so we work our life so we can get a little more money, and we work our life so we can find a little more time to do what we like to do. Now, here's the thing about the gospel. When you look, they were gospel-centered because when they met Jesus, it messed up their priorities. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 44. Verse 44, it says, And all who believed were, held, were together, there's, there's that church thing, and had all things in common. Now listen to this. This is, this is incredible. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I mean, they were just, they were just taking their money and they're saying, Here's my money. Give it to whoever needs it. See, I'm, I'm telling you, the gospel messed them up. We're here's my money, right? I mean, uh, one of the things in, in, in married life, in, in marriage counseling, one of the things I've learned over the years is that one of the biggest challenges to married couples is finances. I mean, it just is. And so when I do premarital counseling, we talk about com communication, we talk about forgiveness, and I always try to work through their budget with them a little bit just because I know what happens. And, and, what, and I always try to say to the groom, and I'll just kind of look at him, and I'll just say, now, here's what you need to understand about finances. What's yours is hers. And he kind of usually grins and smiles because he's in love. He goes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, what's mine is hers, thinking that I'm going to say now what's hers is yours. And then I say, you need to remember what's yours is your, what, what's yours is hers and what's hers is hers. And if you'll just keep in mind that everything is hers, then everything will be fine. Now, can, fellas, can I get a witness? I wouldn't raise my hand. <laughs> I probably wouldn't do that, right? But as long as you get that, then what's yours is hers, and what's hers is hers, then everything's good. 
But in, when they met Jesus, it, they just let go. When they met Jesus, they just said, hey, brother, sister, what's mine is yours. See, their priority changed. Secondly, note, look down at verse 46. This is, this is scary. Verse 46 says this, and day by day, every day, attending the temple together. So every day they came to worship. We'll settle for once a week. Come on Wednesday for Bible study. Okay, we'll do that, all right? But every day, and not only did they go to temple worship, look what else happened in verse 46. Um, attending temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So they had small group and worship all the time. There was a, their, their priorities changed. Now, I'm not saying that you got to do church all the time. But we were at a conference a week and a half ago, and they said the average family now, the average believer now, goes to church once a month. When I look at that, when I think about that compared with what, what happened when they met Jesus, that doesn't add. Now, are we going to be out some? Absolutely. Stuff happens. We go places. But their priority was, when you looked at their calendar and you looked at their checkbook and you looked at what they did with the Word of God and you looked at where they spent their time, the gospel shaped their purpose and the gospel shaped their priorities. And then real quickly, two other things happened. I don't have the right word, but the gospel shaped their passion. Let me just give you some phrases and I'll explain it. Verse 43, and all came upon every soul. That's reverent fear. And then verse um, 46, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. I don't know how to say this, but there was an aura among them. The presence of God was all over them. And they, they functioned in reverent fear. Their attitude, they shared their time. They shared their money. They poured out their life. They were praising God. I mean, they had this, this inexplicable joy. You've heard the phrase, you know, whatever it is, they had it, the presence of God. And, and, and when the gospel is central, we'll have it. Now, I think I know why. I think the reason they had it is because they looked back and they realized that they were sinners, that they were desperate, that they were needy, that they were destined for the wrath of God and a devil's hell. They were destined for that. And Jesus Christ came and he changed their life. And man, when he changed their life, it messed them up. And this presence was all over them. And then last of all, just... We're out of time. We'll deal with this in a week or two. That when they became gospel-centered, it affected other people. See, it says there that they had favor with all the people. See, when the gospel gets central in my life, when the gospel gets central in your life, when, when our priorities, when our purpose, when, when, when our, our presence, our countenance changes, it affects other people. Because look at verse 47. See, when all that happened, it says, The Lord added to the church 
daily or day by day, those will be saved. And so the gospel is not the diving board to get us into the pool of Christian life. The gospel is the pool. The gospel is the ocean. And we, we need to go deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, two questions and we're done. Here's what I want to know. Here's what you need to ask yourself. Are you, are you gospel saved? Have you been convicted? Have you repented of your sin? And have you received Jesus into your life as Lord and Savior? Are you gospel saved? And if the answer is yes, is your life gospel-centered? Has Jesus changed your purpose? Has Jesus changed your priorities? Has Jesus given you this sense of, he's changed my life. He's incredible. And then is that reflected in your influence? Are you gospel saved? Are you gospel saved? Let's pray. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Just let me just, just, just want to be personal. Man, I love you. Some of you, I don't hardly even know you yet. I'm so, I'm pumped that you're here. Some of you are first timers. And man, our heart's desire is that you'll know this Jesus that we know. And that you'll have this hope that we have. And it's incredible to know that he will take away the guilt and he will take away the shame and he can take away the brokenness and he can speak into the, the messiness of our life. And he'll love us with grace and he'll change us with, with mercy and with purpose. And so if you don't know the Jesus that we know, man, our hope is that today you'll turn from your sin and put your faith in him. If you're a follower of Jesus, our hope is that today you'll decide, hey, starting Today, I want to be a gospel-centered believer. I want him to direct my purpose and my priorities. So, Father, as we close our time, as we have a time of reflection, would you have your will and your way in every heart? God, would you just speak into every life this morning? And would you have your way in them? God, that's our prayer and that's our hope. Lord, I know there's some here who are yet to be born again, and we'd love to take the word and just walk them through how they can give their life to Christ. God, others need to just surrender to the centrality of the gospel. God, help us to surrender to Jesus. Father, we pray in his name. Amen.